Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, another Game of Thrones bonus episode here for you, dear Midnight Myth listeners. Game of Thrones, Season 8, Episode 3, The Long Night Has Aired. We have now watched it twice. We've been having a such a great time doing these recap reviews, discussion analyses, Analysis analyses. Analyses. Yeah. Analyses. So we're going to bring some analyses to Game of Thrones, a season eight, episode three. I am very excited to be here. This was, um, in many ways, the penultimate Game of Thrones episode. For most of us, this was the episode that we have been waiting to see for a really long time. I think many fans regardless of whether you are a book reader, regardless of whether you're just a show watcher, if you are deep into the subreddit fan theories, to if you are just a watcher who likes to discuss and analyze it, we've all wanted to see what will happen when the dragons meet the Night of the Dead. Dragons versus zombies. We got that. Oh, it's time to talk about it, and I yeah. can't wait to talk about it. This was the Great War. The Great War came to Winterfell, and we all know uh, from behind the scenes that this was a grueling shoot for the actors and the crew involved. They did 55 nights, uh, and night shoots are awful on their own, but they were in Belfast in pretty awful weather conditions, setting up this winter battle, doing this sort of grueling exercise of making this happen, and it was record-breaking. This was an episode that was somewhere around an hour and 20 minutes long. And most of that was battle. Most of that was combat. Uh, so it it was a remarkable thing to see on screen. Uh, and it was full of surprises. It was full of shocks. It was full of beautiful imagery. It was full of violence and horror uh, and like horror movie horror, like real terror and it was also, you know, full to the brim of emotions of uh, really powerful character deaths and so much more. Uh, before we go any further, 
If you've started this, you probably know we're spoiling this episode. So if you haven't watched it yet for some reason, please watch the episode first and then come back and talk with us. Definitely. Um, Now that the spoiler wall is up, man, it was a rough night for House Mormont. Yeah, man. That is just like, who's going to lead them? That house is, that house lost some powerful people there. I mean, it was a rough night for House Hostack Jones. Did you sleep okay? No. I had a tough time. No, Uh, My heart rate was not back to normal for several hours. You know, and before we dive too deep into it, I think it's fair to say that fans have had a mixture of reactions uh, vacillating between ecstasy and joy and love for the episode to some outright being angry and disliking it and in between. And so anytime you start talking about a piece of art that is by its nature divisive, I'd like to come with just a preamble here. The Midnight Myth, we aren't dealing with life and death actual scenarios. We are giving an informed opinion an opinion that we are going to be expressing our reactions to it. However you felt listeners about the show is valid. So tell us what you think, tell us what you think we got right, what we could have done better, what you think was amazing analysis. But let's also remember this is a TV show. Let's keep it civil. Let's make this a fun and engaging debate about art. And let's not, uh, Let's not take it too seriously, which is not to say I don't think Game of Thrones should be dismissed. It's an important piece of artwork. But let's just remember we're talking about a TV show, not reality. Okay. If yeah. that's fair. Uh, since you've said that, if you do want to engage with us and get into the conversation, uh, Twitter is the best place to do that. We're at The Midnight Myth. Or you can hit us up on Facebook or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast or on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. I think we should structure this similar to our other ones, some gut reactions, MVP scenes, MVP players or MVP um, characters, pardon me. And then where we think this is going and we'll pepper in analysis here and there throughout. Is that okay with you? I think that's great. Before we do that, I just want to say Miguel Sapochnik, the uh, director of this, you are a freaking badass in terms of how you make uh, battles. And I'm super impressed with the work that was done on, on his uh, part. So I just wanted to call out the director real quick. I think that is totally valid and fair. I mean, he, the director of this has directed other great episodes. Remember that little episode called battle of the bastards that oh everyone loved? Oh my God. Right. And this one, if we want to talk about some gut reactions, just some amazing visual storytelling with the dragons piercing above the cloud cover oh, fighting in the just night beautiful. that were just stunning. We have Drogon, wrapping himself around Daenerys and the fallen body of um, Jorah Mormont, Sir Jorah. We have Arya being chased through the, the, the halls of Winterfell. And what I, I noticed about that was the lighting and how true they were to the lighting of this. These are candles inside a castle, or yeah. pardon me, torches inside a castle. Yeah. And how it went from dark, like pitch black, to a little bit of light. And the suspense that they did when Arya was making her way through the library... I could just go on and on of the iconic visual moments that were just jaw-droppingly, uh, just fucking fantastic. Yeah. And I'd say certainly unparalleled in television, and there's not too many movies that are going to be able to touch the amazing visual storytelling that was done in this episode. Yeah, it was really impressive. I just wanted to start with that because last week we really thought the like 
uh, since we're using the MVP terms, the MVP on the like production team was the writer, Brian Cogman. And this episode, I felt like it was very much in the hands of the director who made the choices that made this really stand out and really special. Someone get that man a contract for Star Wars, you know? Yeah, man. Have him make a Star Wars movie. Yeah. Please have him make a Star Wars movie. So thank you for permitting that. Let's... Uh, First gut reaction. Can I take the lead here? Yeah, please. My gut reaction to this, this was probably the first Game of Thrones episode that I had to watch twice. And what what I mean by that is I usually get the Game of Thrones episode. Martin and the showrunners do a good job very much telegraphing what a episode or particular scene is about. I'll give you an example from previous seasons. When Jamie and Lord Tywin are discussing strategy in season one after Jamie assaulted Ned Stark and you have Tywin butchering a, um, a stag on the battlefield while they're discussing the legacy of the family. Pretty well telegraphed. They're literally chopping up the Baratheon symbol while discussing the war with the Starks. And it's just really clear what that scene's about. It's about Tywin pushing Jamie to become a better commander while they're mutilating what the legacy of the Baratheons, right? That's a great scene. All right. And you get that for me from the first viewing, there were many elements of this episode that I did not pick up on the first time watching. Sure. And I think because it was so suspenseful, there was so much pressure on the show. There's so much pressure on me watching the show. There was so many edge of your seat moments that I did miss some details and I did miss some of the flavor. And I think watching it the second time made me appreciate the episode so much more. And I really did love it the first time around, but the end, I had a little bit of a head scratch. Like, I'm not sure how I felt, how they ended this. My second time watching was just like, Oh yeah, this is the only way this could have ended. Great. That's great. And Uh, you. Yeah, so gut reactions, I got to be real with you guys. I was all kinds of messed up over this episode today. Um, uh, I'm super torn, and we're coming from a second viewing at this point, and I'm feeling a little more at peace with the episode, but uh, last night and into this morning, I was pretty angry. Um, Really? You were mad? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I I just want to be like fully transparent about it because I'm on a journey with this episode. Um, And I've been on a journey with Game of Thrones for a while because this show has done things to really make me want to not watch it anymore. And this show has done things to make me say it's the best thing ever. Uh, And I'm often vacillating between those poles. Um, But this episode, some of the things I just said about the direction, the horror, the uh, the cinematography, uh, starting with that long silent sequence and the uh, very long uh, Steadicam shot, that's a single shot for a couple of minutes at the beginning of this episode, um, following different characters and seeing everything that's going on in the background. It's just a tremendous achievement. Uh, so from like a filmmaking standpoint, I think this was pitch perfect. I think it was glorious. Um, other moments that really stood out, of course, were the uh, the lights going out of the Dothraki RX. Uh, whereas they're running into the whites and suddenly the lights start going out and it's just strikes fear in your heart and creates such an emotional reaction and such a physical reaction. I've never had a television show make my body do things, right? Like my heart was pounding. I felt like my fingers were numb. Uh, Seeing Sam 
uh, sort of clenching his fingers and, and fidgeting in that first shot of the show, I was like, yeah, me too, man. I feel you. I feel you. I feel um, this a major butt coming. Yeah. So I, I had issues with the ending and I think I'm not alone in this. And again, I'm at uh, a little more peace after watching it again, but I felt um, very much like things conspired to, uh, to end in a way that was just to surprise me, um, that was just to make me feel like something unexpected happened and didn't feel to me particularly earned. So I'm talking about Arya killing the Night King, um, and I'm talking about the Night King dying at all in this battle that I think a lot of us expected to have way more heavy casualties, a lot more cost for the living, uh, and of course it was difficult and intense, and there was a lot of suffering, but it felt like, boop, Night King's dead. Um, so I had a tough time with that, and I've been wrestling with that kind of all day. Should we talk about that? I mean... You, I mean, you've, you've brought it there, so I'd say let's, should, let's discuss the ending as the beginning of our pod. Let's do it. Okay. Um, so I want to follow up to your point and ask you, because I've heard this a lot, that it was too easy to kill the Night King. Their heroes didn't have to uh, overcome enough. There wasn't enough. It would have meant more if more people have died. And I'm trying to really kind of contextualize what those points are saying, because I feel like there's a subtext there. So the first layer of that is, Bop the Night King died. The Night King has been a nemesis, in particular for Jon Snow, for many seasons. It was always building to this moment where it would be Jon or the Night King, right? So there was going to be no more White Walkers or only White Walkers after this episode, and I think there had to be a definitive end to that. And in a style that the, the way that they chose to stylistically do it was certainly more thematic than it was grounded in quote unquote fantasy realism, which sounds like an oxymoron. And it was until George R. R. Martin invented it, a show or a TV show or book series that is both fantasy, but also grounded in a more realistic setting. And yeah, the ending had a little bit of a suspension of the fantasy realism element. Um, but I would point out that every Game of Thrones episode that has been an episode long battle, every single one of them has ended with a surprise ending where something or someone comes through at the very bitter moment and saves the heroes and turns the tide of the, the battle that they're losing. So I think it, it is both in the tradition of all of those other episodes. Um, and the other thing that I think it's just worth pointing out, like how much death do we need of our heroes to say that it's worth? You know, so Jon Snow goes through tremendous pain. We see Sam crying in a pile of dead bodies. We have a Varys and a child covered in blood in a crypt hiding and shivering in the cold for their life. We have Brienne of Tarth giving the most guttural war cries I've heard any warrior at any show backed to a corner with Jamie. We have Jorah bleeding out. We have every single hero on the verge of their demise. We're seeing the end of the show, like every hero dead show over. 
And we bring the show right up to that moment and it doesn't allow that to happen, I think is pretty cool. And be my response, my at least my counterpoint to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I intellectually, I get everything that you're saying here. And like I've said a couple of times, I feel a little bit better about it now. But I can't erase the fact that I had that reaction, that I suddenly felt a just tremendous sense of anticlimax. And I'm not the only one who felt this way because we've been led to believe over seven seasons that this is the great war, that this is the only enemy that matters and that this is the enemy that will be standing with us at the end of the world. Um, And so to see it just suddenly gone to see what they've been referring to as death incarnate just gone uh was a, a a huge shock and i have been trying to figure out the meaning of it because every other time there's a surprise i'm thinking like the red wedding and the downfall of rob stark or the death of john snow in season 5 these things are preceded by so many portents and signs that if you uh you know, you aren't paying super close attention. You might not even pick up on. But then when you go back, you're like, oh, God, John had to die. John was always going to die. And this felt um, like I'm still searching for the why. I'm still searching for the why and the meaning of, uh, of the end of the Great War in this way. A few things. Can I do some counterpoints? That, I mean, it's yeah, it's sure. not that I think you're wrong. I totally respect where you're at, but I do disagree if that's okay. Uh, yeah, like, I know you do. Yeah. I don't I don't think you're incorrect. I don't think it's a matter of who's right and who's wrong. Um, so one, the Night King isn't gone. He's defeated. And the Night King was soundly defeated. And it makes sense that the greatest army that Westeros has ever seen with three or two of the mightiest dragons could not defeat the Night King. What would defeat the Night King always was guile, was always misdirection, was always trickery and sneakery. This is not someone that you're going to win in a Jon Snow, Daenerys-style battle where you line up your men and you fly your dragons at it until they're all dead. And I don't think the Night King could be defeated that way. And the other thing I would say is that if we, if we analyze Arya's arc up into this point, and we understand what the character Arya is and what the character Arya has gone through, we can see all over the signs that this was her destiny, more so than any other character. And hindsight's twenty twenty. And the reason I'd say that is that, A, Arya joins a fucking death cult, gets trained to be one of the top assassins that is, has pseudo-magic level abilities to mimic the size and voice and look of other human beings by cutting off of their faces and channeling their dead spirits. She's the character closest to death that is still part of the living. Because she is the character so close and so intimate with death, she is the character that ultimately has the power to sneak up on the Night King. The power to sneak up, and then she's also the character who is clever enough to know that no direct assault even from behind, even as an assault on behind is going to catch this character. So I'm going to need to drop my dagger and drive it deep into the chest of the ultimate enemy. And in doing so, we ask, what does it mean? Maybe the show is saying it takes death to stop death. Maybe it is saying that what you need to defeat the ultimate weapon of war, the night, the white walkers, You need a weapon of war equally ferocious, 
but uh, not compatibly. So not fighting fire with fire. You don't need the biggest army. You need the sneakiest assassin. Maybe what it's saying will become totally clear at the end of these three new episodes that will wrap the rest of this story up. I think it's tough for me to say, to put a, a total pin on what it means to have Arya do it, but the signs are there. I think that's one of the reasons Melisandre is there. If we look at how Beric the Hound and Melisandre and those characters and what they have went through and how those characters have ultimately supported Arya, they've all done it to get Arya to one point. I will point out an example, the Hound. The Hound in the Battle of Blackwater sees the, the fire. Fire is his enemy. If fire reminds him of his inadequacies, fire reminds him of the trauma of his sadistic brother. What does he do? He retreats from battle and then he ends up meeting Arya out on the wild and he tries to escort her back to Winterfell and he fails and Arya leaves him to die. We have a similar scenario happening here at the end of this where the trench is lit and on fire. He's staring down fire and he is staring down zombies and he's just like, fuck it. I don't fight for anyone. I never fought for anyone. We're all just going to be dead. I'm just going to stay here and wait till uh, someone comes. And it is Beric Dadarian who once tried to kill the hound who says, Hey, look at Arya, look at this character and look at how this character is fighting. That inspires these two men who were once on her list to be killed, to go and join her, to get her to the point where Melisandre reminds her, Brown eyes, green eyes, blue eyes. And what do we say to death? Not today. And I think the show is right to put a gap between that point and when she ultimately kills the Night King because it has to, for me, it's, it's more thematic and it's more about the cinema experience rather than the symbolic experience. But it has to build that up to the point where, oh my God, everyone's going to die. The Night King's going to win. And then, thunk, here comes the assassin to win the day. Yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I get that. Um, you know, on a second watch, I, I did start to really follow Arya's arc as closely as possible. And uh, she truly is the, uh, she's the hinge on which this episode turns. Uh, she is the the closest thing that we have to a complete through line for this episode. While every character does have an arc uh, of some sort within it, she has um, one that takes her through every geographical location in the castle, one that takes her through her past, one that takes her to uh, parts of herself that she had lost. Uh, and every character that we see serve a great purpose uh, is doing so in service of her to some extent. So like Beric Dondarrion, holding back the whites for just a few more moments to make sure that she can escape. Like the hound turning and deciding to continue fighting uh, so that he can not disappoint her, so that he can help her. And Melisandre, making sure that she says exactly the right words. While I am not 100% satisfied with the conclusion of this episode, I can, I can respect that. And I can absolutely appreciate that. And this season, I think, has done a, a lot more service to Arya than previous seasons have, which I've said before, uh, because she's a character that I've had some issues with in, uh, in the later seasons of her arc. And so I am pleased to see that kind of work being done for her. Very cool. And 
Um, I'm sorry that you had such an angry reaction to it. I wish it weren't so because... Yeah. And I, I do have hope that like, I'm, I'm going to understand this and I'm going to be able to look back and I and appreciate and I'll figure out what it means. I, but I, I just don't know. So we got to see what's going to happen. Yeah. It's a, it just makes me sad because I enjoyed it and have had, and yeah, I'm pondering it and I'm trying to piece it together and I want to understand what it means to it's why we do these podcasts but it just makes me sad to hear how upset it made you. You know, a TV show shouldn't make you so angry at it that you can't sleep. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, The Sopranos is a thing, too. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes TV shows make us angry. Well, let's talk about our MVP. Yeah. Do you want to do scene or character? Let's do, um, let's do scenes first. All right, give me your MVP scene and tell me why. Uh, so... I, I guess I'm always choosing a Sansa scene because I love her, but uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, Sansa and Tyrion in the crypts. And I think uh, as far as cutting away from combat for just a moment, it really packed a punch uh, seeing those two characters relating to each other again uh, in, in a really uh, meaningful and impactful way that isn't just uh, dismissive of each other or isn't just a, a quiet reunion, but is like completely full and uh, overflowing with the uh, the significance of their relationship. Even though they never loved each other, even though they never got beyond uh, being forced to marry one another and trying to tolerate each other's existence, there is just a, a deep well of understanding there. So based on the two kind of major potent scenes that we have for them, there's the first one where uh, they are discussing their past, and she says, you were the best of them. And then there's another scene, which I'm going to call my MVP here, uh, where they are in the crypts. The kings of winter have been awakened and are crawling out of their graves, and Tyrion and Sansa have hidden behind one tomb, and they say nothing to each other. They take each other's hands. Sansa pulls out the dagger that Arya gave to her, Tyrion pulls out a dagger of his own. They breathe. He kisses her hand. They share a meaningful look. And then he lets out one last breath before making a move. And we cut away. It is a very uh, quick but extremely loaded scene. And I, I have loved watching uh, these complicated relationships that are not romantic that are not meant to, you know, connote a, a great love affair coming, like Sansa and Theon last uh, episode, was not about them falling in love. It was about uh, looking someone in the eye and seeing them and beholding them and truly understanding them and respecting them. And to see that between these two characters, I think, was really, really meaningful and really special. I love that. I did really enjoy that moment where uh, Tyrion kisses uh, Sansa's hand. And I, I thought it was a very earned moment. I also loved in just a call back to the scene that set that up. Yeah. One Sansa said you were the best of them. And he was just like, Oh, I forget the line he says, but his, it's essentially it's like, like, that's horrible. That's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> like I was the best of them. Yeah. <laughs> I was sleeping with a whore the whole time. Don't you know, drinking wine too much and trying to kill my sister. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I, I just love that Tyrion was, um, 
Tyrion was a, very much allowed to be witty and to be serious and to be romantic and to be stupidly brave. And yeah. it, it juxtaposed against Sansa's, you know, the best thing we can do right now is stare at the truth. I, I'm I'm brutally messing up the lines, but essentially admit that you, if you were out there in the battlefield, you wouldn't be able to win or do anything. Admit your role, admit that the role that you have to play and own that role. Yeah. Which harkens. We are not the ones. Yeah. Which harkens very much back to Tyrion in season one saying, you know, don't hide who you are. The world won't forget who you are. Wear it like armor. And I felt like there was a callback sort of philosophically between the subtext in those scenes that I thought was really cool. Yeah. And it was really cool. I think the visuals when the crypt comes to life was really great. Um, I think most people who have been paying attention to the show pretty seriously, watching fan theories, reading fan theories, I should say, could have guessed that the crypt was yeah. going to come full of zombies. Yeah, at some we were point. all ready for that. Um, but yeah, I love that. So allow me my MVP. Yeah, please. M- my and I don't know. Like, I want to say the dragons battling in the sky. That like, was I great. really want to say that. But I'm going to have to pick Arya in the library. And I thought, and then that leading directly to Arya running through the halls of Winterfell, which leads to, I believe, I don't think it's cut. I think that is one long scene where she's in the the library. She stabs so silently that one yeah. white. And then she gets out and then the she's behind behind the door. Then they break through and there come Beric and the Hound and et cetera. I'm rambling a little bit here. Tighten it up. I loved when, and I've always loved when Game of Thrones plays really well with horror. And that was a true horror scene. And if zombies are going to take Winterfell, I need to see some horror in it. I need it to be truly terrifying. And I thought that was fucking scary as it shit. It really was. And to the point where Arya's blood drips and the white hears it. But it also, to me, made, made sense to the overall narrative because we ask ourselves, how did Arya sneak up on the Night King and pass the other whites? Well, we see her ability to sneak in this scene. And if they're not actively looking for her, she has the ability to hide because she's a faceless uh, warrior or faceless man or faceless human. I don't know what Arya is called. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and yeah, she moves silently and it is pretty amazing to watch. And just to be clear about my perceptions of the ending, I, I don't actually have a problem with the realism of what happened. Fair enough. Uh, you know, by the way, there are white walkers and zombies and dragons. Yeah. So why not have an assassin who could steal people's face sneak up on one of them? I'm exactly. with you on that. Totally. Exactly. Totally with you on that as well. Shall we pivot to our MVP characters? Yeah. Do you want to do that? Would you like to take the, the lead on this? Would you mind going first? Because I want to make sure we don't do the same one, but I have two candidates in mind. Okay. So I'm going to pick my MVP character and... I'm also going to pick my not MVP. Oh, okay. I have a not MVP, if you'll permit me. Uh, like a, the opposite of MVP, like yeah. the least valuable character? And then I'm going to go to my MVP. Okay. that's great. My not MVP was the battle plan. Oh. Like, what the fuck were they, were John and, and Daenerys thinking with this battle plan? There's a really good article. It also did break down, but. <laughs> well, you know, so there's this really good article on Wired. Uh, I forget who wrote it. 
but it was someone that went deep into the military strategy, analyzing the weapons and the context, and was just like, hey, you know, draw the Night King out into the open using Bran as bait so you can kill the Night King, which would kill the White Walkers. Good overall endgame strategy. But why the fuck are your catapults behind the Dothraki? Why do you use the catapults once and then the catapults are in the front lines and the first thing that gets destroyed once the Dothraki are destroyed? Why are the Dothraki only are used right at the beginning as well? Why not save them as a reserve force? You know, like if they're coming on the walls, why not have the Dothraki positioned on a behind a ridge and flank them and try to break their lines that way? Like so many elements of their strategy that just seem botched. And it, and in a certain way, I'm okay with it because it added to the drama. But another way, I'm like, wait a minute. Jamie knows how to defend and take castles. We've seen him do it. Grey Worm knows how to defend and take castles. We've seen him do it. You know, like these are two great military commanders. Maybe the two best military commanders in Westeros in Jamie and um, and in Grey Worm. Jorah has been able to do it. We've seen Daenerys use so many clever military tactics from small forces to inspire slave insurrections. Like we've seen her legitimately come up with really clever, amazing tactics, tricking her enemies into surrendering, doing all sorts of great things. As soon as the Dothraki are gone, Daenerys, who's supposed to be waiting for the Night King's just like, fuck the plan. I'm just going to go right, right around and burn shit. Like, no, no, you had a plan. The Dothraki did their job. It was a bad idea to throw them all at the White Walkers first. Sure. So the battle plan was like, man, put the catapult. So the other thing, good, really great plan to have the Trench of Fire. That was really awesome. Yeah, I love that. That was a really good way to slow down that assault, and it worked. Why aren't they shooting arrows? Where are the catapults behind the enemy lines throwing catapults? Man, not MVP. They did not have a good strategy to fight the White Walkers. And as a guy that really enjoys that so many aspects of Game of Thrones involve interesting and clever tactics, I expected more from these heroes. I just want to say that. Shame on all of them. Wow. Okay. All right. I really expect them. They're supposed to be better at that. Okay. And we'll link to that Wired article so you can get all the juicy details. It's a really fun article. And I intuitively was like, man, some of that doesn't make sense. But This, this doesn't add up. This article broke it down so in detail and so thoroughly. It's a really fun read. And it really drives the point home that, yes, the, and the battle plan was the not MVP. I appreciate that perspective because for me, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't understand that stuff just for watching it. And I also am like, well, isn't everything different because we're fighting, you know, non-sentient undead. We're fighting just like waves and waves of, you know, enemies that do not tire and that do not need to eat and don't need to rest and uh, are impervious to most harm. But even with that in mind, this is still not a well-set-up siege. No, not at all. Because the, the catapults, other than the dragons, the, the trebuchets is what they're actually called, right, or cat, yeah. they're a different type of catapult, are their most powerful weapon. Because it can do strategically two things. It can, one, it can light the battlefield because it's dark. Yeah. Because they're throwing these flaming like balls of presumably hot oil or something. And two it's going to do the most amount of damage per attack. Right, yeah. So you can really soften the enemy lines and soften the enemy's support by hitting them hard with this weapon. Yeah. 
and they use it once and then two minutes later it's gone. And that's simply put putting them in a different place on the battlefield means you could use them more and do more damage. And it's just like, so really like, come on, we've seen, so call back to a scene where Jamie approaches the phrase who are trying to take river run. Yeah. And he goes immediately into, okay, so you just let an entire army walk up. You have no one defending your right. rear guard. Yeah. You're not digging your trenches properly. And he goes really into like how terrible and sloppy their tactics are and starts reordering them. And when the fray disrespects him, he slaps him with his golden hand. And I'm like, where is that, Jamie? Now, granted, he doesn't have a lot of power here. Oh, he doesn't here, have time. But he can certainly be like, hey, Brian, Brian, come over here. This tell isn't going to work. Tell them to put them like this. Why? Because I've won these things before. Yeah. And, and even then, I don't think, so Jon Snow doesn't have a lot of success or have a lot of, um, you know, major tactical victories in his show run, but he has certainly commanded the Night's Watch and defended that in a battle. Jon Snow's like Richard the Lionheart. Grab the sword that inspires everyone to go yeah, out and charge. Yeah, sure. That's his leadership style, and it works really well for him. So I can maybe say Jon Snow might not know where to put a catapult in this scenario. Fair right, enough. Right. Daenerys should. Grey Worm should. I tend to think Brienne probably has studied military tactics. To be a warrior at her level... I, they have never said it, but it wouldn't be out of line to think, Bran, like, maybe the catapult shouldn't be here. Maybe we should do something different with this Dothraki horde that doesn't, you know, get them all killed in a minute. Yeah. So that was your least valuable That, that was my not MVP. Tell thank me you your for, MVP. Thank you for letting me go on that rant. Absolutely. Which is can. not to say I disagreed with the episode. It made for great television. Yeah. But, you know, come on. Come on, guys. MVP, Theon Greyjoy. Wow, I didn't expect that. 100%. I didn't know it was going to be Theon till the second watch. Theon Greyjoy is my MVP because should the Night King get to Bran, game over. Bran is gone, the Night King wins, history is over, they're all going to die. And Theon Greyjoy and the Ironborn that defended him were the last stand and gave the, the their lives for the few seconds needed so that Arya could get into position for the main assassination and kill. In particular, if you're watching this at the, when he runs out of arrows and picks up a spear, he kills every single motherfucking white that comes near Bran. He's got quite a body count. It's just, there's whites everywhere and he doesn't even have a scratch on him and it takes the night King to kill him. Way to go, Theon. You did your job. You laid down your life. And because of that, the Great War is won. Without Theon there, Bran dies. And if Bran dies, the battle is over. And because of that, he's got to be my MVP. And he redeems himself fully in the eyes of Bran. And he gets to die in his home. Yeah, yeah. He he really does he really does show up and show out in this episode. Theon really delivers. Does he even say a word in this episode? I'm trying to think. He he hardly says a single word. Before the the Night King comes, he goes, you know, Bran, I just want to say Oh, that's right. And Bran's just like, everything you did got you to this point where you're here. And then um then uh, what else happens? I think that's about, then he says to the guys, make every shot count with your yeah, arrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he doesn't have a lot of words, but his deeds were super important. Absolutely. And he has, he's come through so much. 
And his interaction with Bran is a recognition of the fact that everyone gets an opportunity. Everybody can seize the opportunity for redemption. Uh, no, no person is lost. No person is a lost cause. Because Theon does some of the most repugnant and just atrocious things on this show. And there's some atrocious people on this show, uh, but he kills some kids. Like, he does bad shit. Uh, and for him to come through what he does and to be so dedicated and so um, desperate to even out you know, his ledger, I think uh, he really makes it. I think he really gets there. Absolutely. Hit me up with your MVP. Uh, this is a tough one because I have a couple that I've been juggling and I was hoping that you would say one of them so that I could say the other. Um, but I'm going to tell you, all right, here we go. It was going to be Melisandre. And I think I have to spend some time and talk about my main man, Jorah. I think the MVP for me was Jorah, not because he had the most impact on the battle, not because he was the bravest of everyone out there, although he was, he was pretty very, fucking brave, very brave. But because uh, I thought the conclusion of his story was so fitting and so uh, so beautiful and such a gift um, to to see him go down swinging, fighting for his Khaleesi, to see uh, him on the front lines in the cavalry riding with the Dothraki, to see him uh, standing his ground in the north, to see him saying, here I stand, like a true Mormont, and dying in the arms of his queen uh, was so beautiful. And it is heart-wrenching to watch him try to choke out those last words that you know are like right on his lips, but he can't get them out. Um, and it, it really hurt. And I had people today as I walked into work who were like, hey, I'm really sorry for you, loss. Because they knew that I was like, I was really trying to harden my heart for this weekend because I knew Jorah was going to bite it. And we've talked uh, about Jorah in a, an extensive character study. It's one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Uh, and the chivalric tradition that his character is crafted in and how he very much is sort of a casualty of the medieval romance. What if you thought the medieval romance was real life, but then real life kicked the shit out of you and you turned into a bastard for it? Uh, and how do you come back from that? I think is Jorah's real uh, journey. And at the end of this, he has just like Theon, been fully redeemed. Uh, every horrible thing that he did in the past, I think, has been, uh, has been evened out by the love that he has put into the universe uh, and the love that he has inspired in other people. And to have Drogon come down and cradle him and Danny as she's mourning him was just nice. Totally, totally love that. Couldn't yeah. agree with you more. I love Jorah. It was a great death for him. It was, it was a, a warrior's death. It was a it was a death that he needed to go through to complete his arc, which was to lay down his life for Daenerys, and so that she could live and get a chance to remake the world in in a character that he just so believes in. He so believes in her, and so believes that she can do good. He's willing to die for it and finally redeem his his sense of chivalry, a sense of honor. I think you said it perfectly. Great MVP. Um, love it. Do you have any predictions? Oh God. Going forward at this point. You know, I was so blindsided by what happened in this episode that I'm at this point, like I have no idea what's going to happen. I feel um, really in the dark 
And I kind of think that's a good thing. Um, you know, even though I had a bit of a negative reaction to the way that this episode unfolded, um, at the end of this, I think it's kind of exciting to be on the precipice of the second half of the final season of Game of Thrones and be like, I got no fucking idea. Um, yeah, I got no fucking idea. I mean, a few pragmatic things. Daenerys's army and forces are severely weakened. Yes, they are. Without the Dothraki, I think she probably lost 50% of her Unsullied at least, maybe more. The forces of the North severely depleted. Are the the forces of the North going to want to go march down south with Daenerys now that they've defeated the Night King? Are they going to batten down the hatches? It sort of looks like they're going to fight And rebuild. For her. I mean, who knows? You know? Yeah. Who knows if they're going to? Some houses might. Some houses might not. We don't know the conditions of the dragons. They took a beating. They may be dying. One may be dead. The dragons might not be able to make it with her. They may need time to heal. So who knows where this is going? Daenerys and John are they have in to love finish their conversation with each other, except he's got a better claim to the throne. And Cersei has 20,000 fresh cell swords who are by, you know, by uh, no stretch of the imagination, a uh, slouches. They're the golden company known yeah. to only ever join the winning side of a war. So they're going to be a formidable force there. So I've got no idea where this is going. I've got no idea who's going to make it. Who's not. I thought more characters were going to die on this episode yeah, than I think we they all did. did. Yeah. So I'm glad that so many of our heroes made it through. I, I think there's some semblance of hope that if Tyrion and Sansa can form an alliance, right. that can help align. Because I think if Sansa rallies the North around Daenerys, I think that will go a longer way than John. Because I think John people are a little, they're kind of doubting him since he gave up his, his kingdom. Right. Yeah. So we'll see, but I have we'll you know, few what, predictions. We see what kind of uh, role Arya takes in the future too, because now that she's the Night King Slayer, how are people are going to perceive her? Is she going to be celebrated? Is she going to be lauded? Um, what's that going to look like? And you know, I have questions. This is just a a thought of mine because one of the critiques that we had of this episode was Bran just uh, warging into a raven and kind of disappearing, only to wake up at the last minute before his. Uh, presumed death at the hands of the Night King. I'm interested to see, you know, if there was a greater or deeper meaning to that, if Bran still knows something, if Bran was actually... Uh, Doing something? Laying the plans so that they, uh, you know, worked out the way that they worked out. Uh, so lots of questions, very few answers. And very few predictions. And I very few predictions. I have no idea where this is going to go. I think we all knew the Battle of Winterfell, the Long Night, would be this episode... I think we all knew that this would be the biggest battle they've ever done and that it would change where the show would go from here. They've got three episodes left. I have no idea what's going to happen or where they're going to end up. Can't even begin to predict. Yeah. And wow. um, any final thoughts? Uh, that's, uh, that's all I got. Till next time, guys. Be kind. Valar Rugulis. Mm-hmm.